Hello, and welcome to the Herodotus Podcast. This is Episode 8, Turtle Soup, Book 1, Chapters 46 to 56. Last time in the podcast, we learned about the tragic fate of one of Croesus's sons, Attis, whose death was foretold by a prophetic dream. Even with this forewarning, Croesus unwittingly set into motion events that would lead to his son's demise, and was racked with grief. In today's episode, Croesus's story continues in the aftermath of this great tragedy, as the king looks ahead to the future of his kingdom. Plus, for the first time, the Persians enter into our story as political actors, and we'll round things off by considering the most important religious site in Greece, Delphi, and its main attraction, the Oracle of Apollo. Herodotus begins today's section of the text with a rather jarring transition. Quote, After the death of his son, Croesus was sunk into terrible grief for two years. But then, but then, the overthrow of Astyages, the son of Cyaxares, by Cyrus, the son of Cambyses, and the growth of Persian power drew Croesus from his mourning. He decided, if he could, he would check the rising dominance of the Persians before they became too strong. End quote. In the course of two sentences, Herodotus zooms out from the personal to the geopolitical, and for the rest of this episode, we're going to hover somewhere between those two levels. As for the names that Herodotus so casually introduces, as if the reader is perfectly familiar with them, well, have no fear. We will be. Consider the sentence a flash forward. The loop-de-looping narrative structure of the histories will get us there eventually, and we'll get a good look at how the Persian Cyrus took down the Median Astyages. But all that is in the textual future, which is to say the narrative past. What's essential to grasp is the situation. The Persian state, led by the great King Cyrus, was on the march. And, looking westward, it had Croesus and Lydia directly in its sights. Croesus now faced an important decision. Was it worth trying to take on the Persians? Pondering this tricky question, Croesus imitated his ancestors Gyges and Aliades, and decided it was time to consult an oracle. But this in turn raised another issue. Which one? The oracle that we've heard the most about thus far, the oracle of Apollo at Delphi, was certainly the most prominent oracle in the Greek world, but it was by no means the only one. Understandably, Croesus didn't want to take any chances, since he needed to know which oracle would actually give him truthful information. And so he devised a clever plan. Herodotus lists the oracles which Croesus decided to consult. There was, of course, Delphi, as well as Abai, another oracle of Apollo not far from Delphi in Phocis, as well as Dodona, an oracle of Zeus and Epirus in northwestern Greece. Croesus also looked to the oracle of the hero Amphiaraeus in northern Attica, not too far from Athens, to the oracle of Trophonius in Boeotia in central Greece, and to the oracle of Didyma near Miletus on the Ionian coast of Asia Minor. Nor did Croesus confine his plan to the Greek world. He even looked farther afield, to the oracle of the Egyptian god Amun at Siwa, 
an oasis near the border between modern-day Egypt and Libya. The king's plan was to test these oracles, and so he sent messengers to each of them, but instructed them to wait to ask their question until a hundred days had elapsed from their departure from Sardis. That way, all the oracles would be consulted on the very same day. On that hundredth day, they were to ask what Croesus, king of Lydia and son of Aliates, was doing just then. Herodotus reports that only the Delphic oracle's reply was recorded, but it's quite the response. It goes, I know the number of grains of sand and the size of the sea. I understand the mute and hear the voiceless. The smell has come to my senses of a hard-shelled tortoise boiling together in a bronze cauldron with lamb flesh, with bronze above and bronze below. Sifting through the responses from the seven oracles that he had consulted, Croesus found little cause for satisfaction in their answers. However, when his envoys returned from Delphi with this response, the king joyfully acknowledged the power of Apollo with a prayer, since the oracle had hit the nail on the head. What Croesus had done was try to devise an activity that nobody could possibly guess. So he had chopped up a tortoise and a lamb and cooked them together in a bronze cauldron with a bronze lid. The oracle at Delphi had passed the test. And so Croesus had a line on an accurate predictor. Interesting side note. Herodotus adds that the oracle of Amphiaraeus gave a response that Croesus regarded as correct, but its answer has not been preserved. Our loss, I suppose. So, having determined that the Delphic oracle was accurate, Croesus did everything he could to butter up Apollo. He pulled out all the stops, offering up 3,000 sacrificial animals and burning them along with lavish couches, golden cups, and fine purple tunics. It was burning that brought the meat of the sacrifices up to the gods, so presumably the same principle applied to gifts. He even commanded every Lydian to sacrifice what they could to Apollo in order to win the gods' favor. Nor did it end there. Making use of Lydia's vast supply of gold, Croesus had 117 ingots made, each one 18 inches long, 9 inches wide, and 3 inches high. That's a lot of gold. He also commissioned a statue of a lion made of refined gold, weighing 10 talents, which is to say about 570 pounds, as well as two enormous bowls, one made of gold and one silver, the latter apparently able to contain some 6,000 gallons. On top of this, he sent a number of other basins and bowls made of precious metal, a life-size statue of a woman, which, Herodotus reports, the Delphians claim represents Croesus's baker, though this is probably a misunderstanding, and, to top it all off, his own wife's jewelry. In short, to win the oracle's favor, Croesus absolutely love-bombed Delphi with golden gifts. In addition, the king also sent a gift to the oracle of Amphiaraeus, a shield and a spear both made entirely of gold. Very impressive, to be sure, but a gift that pales in comparison with his uh, generosity towards Delphi. 
When this smorgasbord of gifts was delivered to the temples of Apollo and Amphiaraeus, his envoys inquired, as Croesus had instructed them, whether he should attack the Persians, and whether he should strengthen his army with allied forces. The two oracles gave the same response. If Croesus should attack the Persians, he would destroy a great empire. They also counseled him to find the most powerful city among the Greeks and to make it his ally. Delighted with this response, since it obviously foretold that he would wipe out the forces of Cyrus, Croesus went even further and dispatched gold to every resident of Delphi. In return, all Lydians got the right to skip the line when consulting the oracle, essentially a Delphic fast pass, as well as exemptions from all charges, the best seats at Delphic festivals, and the right in perpetuity to claim Delphic citizenship should they want it. Croesus then asked the oracle a third question, just to be safe. Would his kingship last a long time? The Delphic priestess's answer was this. When the king of the Medes is a mule, only then, soft-footed Lydian, by the stony-shored Hermes, flee, and do not stay, and do not feel shame at being a coward. Once again, Croesus was thrilled by the answer he received. Obviously, the Medes would never make a mule their king. Without a doubt, then, Croesus was going to rule for the rest of his life. He then turned his attention to the other point that the oracle had made, and began to think about who among the Greeks would make the best allies. And it's here that our narrative will break off for the episode. Today, the Oracle of Apollo at Delphi takes center stage in our narrative, and it won't be for the last time. As Delphi was, quite literally, a central ancient Greek cultural site, it's worth spending a bit of time talking about it and what went on there. Delphi is located on the southern slopes of Mount Parnassus, some 2,000 feet above the Gulf of Corinth, in a region of Greece called Phocis. It was one of the four great Pan-Hellenic sanctuaries, and so it was regarded as an important religious site by Greeks from all over the Greek world, some of whom traveled very far to worship there. Even today, Delphi is an absolutely magical place to visit, and as you stand there looking down through the bright, clear air at the archaeological site and at the surrounding mountains, it's not difficult to see why the place was regarded as holy. In fact, the Greeks believed that the significance of the location was determined by Zeus himself. The god had released two eagles, one from the west and one from the east, and it was at Delphi that the birds met, indicating that it was the center of the world. This was symbolized by an egg-shaped stone called the omphalos, or navel, that stood inside the Temple of Apollo. There's two important aspects of Delphi that come up in today's text. The first, and surely Delphi's most famous feature, is the Pythia, the Oracle of Apollo. So who was this Pythia, and why had she set up shop at Delphi? Since Delphi was a sanctuary devoted to Apollo, the Pythia is, fittingly, a priestess of Apollo. 
She was selected from among the women of Delphi to be the god's mouthpiece. While the age of women chosen for this position changed over time, initially it was a young woman, but later on became a woman over 50, the requirements that stayed constant were that she had to abstain from all sexual relations and live in isolation from all outside contact, so as not to interfere with her receptivity to Apollo's message. Her title, Pythia, derives from the mythological history of Delphi itself, since it was there that Apollo killed a terrible serpent, Python, in Greek, before taking over the site and making it his own. As he was the god of prophecy, it only made sense that Apollo's sanctuary would house a priestess who had oracular powers. The process for consulting the oracle seems to have been the following. If you wanted to get a prophecy, you had to be there on the few days each year, only nine, in fact, that the oracle was available for taking questions. This, by the way, seems to be a slight hitch in Herodotus's narrative, since Croesus appears to consult the oracle a number of times within a short period, uh, but this is perhaps the most forgivable inaccuracy in the entire histories. Anyway, if you were there on the right day, you first had to pay a consultation tax called a pelanos, which originally had been an offering to the gods of a mixture of meal, honey, and oil, but over time simply became a monetary contribution. Again, as a side note, it was this pelanos from which the Lydians were exempted after Croesus's lavish gifts to the Delphians. So, once you'd paid your money, you would attend a sacrifice of a goat outside the Temple of Apollo. If that sacrifice went well, that is, if there were no ill omens, the consultation could proceed. You would then enter into the main chamber of the temple to offer a second animal sacrifice, before being taken by priests into the adyton, or the holiest chamber of the temple, literally, that which is not to be entered. This was built into the ground, a cave, perhaps natural, perhaps artificial, into which you would descend. The priests accompanying you were called prophetai, or interpreters, for reasons that will become clear in a moment. At last, you would be in the presence of the Pythia herself, who had prepared for this moment by ritually purifying herself and burning an offering on an altar inside the temple. Crowned with a laurel wreath, she would be sitting atop a bronze tripod. For an illustration of this, check out this episode's page on the website, HerodotusPodcast.com. The priestess would be in a state of altered consciousness, a kind of self-induced trance that was a sign of divine possession, literally a mania, a mania, by Apollo. You would ask your question to one of the priests, who would relay it to the Pythia. She would give a response that had to be shaped or interpreted by the priests before it could reach your ears. Now, this last part I've left intentionally vague. Although there exist several descriptions of the consultation ritual, including one by an eyewitness, the 2nd century CE author Plutarch, who would have been intimately familiar with the procedure, as he himself was a priest at the oracle, we don't have a clear understanding of exactly what sort of things the Pythia said, or how exactly the interpreters converted her words into something more intelligible. The problem, 
as classicist Yulia Ustinova has observed, is that the majority of ancient authors assume a familiarity with the workings of the oracle, and thus feel no need to describe it in detail. To draw in an exact parallel, why would a Catholic author, writing for a Catholic audience, minutely lay out every element of a Mass? As for the prophecy itself, it's notable that the words of Apollo, as spoken by the Pythia, needed to be interpreted by priests before being given to worshippers. And even then, as we can see from today's text, the prophecies weren't entirely straightforward. These interpreted responses needed to be interpreted still further. It's for this reason that one epithet of Apollo was loxius, the ambiguous, or the indirect. As the philosopher Heraclitus remarked, quote, the god whose oracle is at Delphi neither tells nor conceals, but indicates through signs. Close quote. Interpretation, therefore, is key. Looking at the two prophecies that Herodotus directly quotes in today's text, not only are they ambiguous, but they're actually written in verse. They're composed in the same meter used in the Iliad and the Odyssey, called dactylic hexameter. This adds to these messages yet another level of removal from the ordinary. Not only are these the words of a deity, but they're written in a way that marks them off as special speech, elevated, sacred. As for the prophecies themselves, I'm going to put aside the very last one for the moment. We'll come back to it when the time is right. But let's look at the first prophecy again. Once more, that's, I know the number of grains of sand and the size of the sea. I understand the mute and hear the voiceless. The smell has come to my senses of a hard-shelled tortoise boiling together in a bronze cauldron with lamb flesh, with bronze above and bronze below. Croesus fixates on the last three lines of this prophecy. The smell has come to my senses, etc., etc. That's where the Pythia demonstrates her prophetic abilities. But the king doesn't even seem to notice the first two lines. I know the number of grains of sand and the size of the sea. I understand the mute and hear the voiceless. These words are, in a way, a warning. I, Apollo, know the unknowable. Don't think you can put one over on me. I am smarter than you. But, yet again, in another instance of a trend that we've seen in the last few episodes, Croesus just doesn't take the hint. He seizes on the part that answers his question most directly, then barges ahead asking questions whose answers he should really scrutinize very closely. And in a turn of events that will shock, I think, no one, Croesus's misreading of these prophecies will come back to haunt him. Let's now turn to the second important aspect of Delphi, its stupendous riches, such as those deposited there by Croesus. Several times in today's text, Herodotus refers to, quote, treasuries at Delphi, where the gifts of the Lydian king have been placed. Treasury, in this instance, is a somewhat misleading term. You might think the word was being used in its modern sense, a place where wealth is kept in storage. 
that Delphi was not a sacred bank vault. Rather, ancient Greek treasuries were modestly sized buildings where Greeks would send precious objects and dedicate them as votive offerings. In other words, wealth freely offered up and dedicated to a god, in the case of Delphi, to Apollo. We can distinguish between two types of votive offerings in today's story. Gifts given in thanks for a favorable prophecy, yes, but before that, gifts given in anticipation of a favorable prophecy. Consider how many more offerings Croesus gave before he asked his question about what to do, compared with his donation after he got his response. The priests, those interpreters, who turned the mystic utterances of the Pythia into more intelligible speech, were humans like anyone else. Delphi was a special city, certainly, but still a city, and had its own political outlook and interests. Now, I'm not going to take a stand in this podcast either for or against the existence of Apollo, or the truth of the Delphic Oracle, but because the gods' words were filtered through human beings, it's perfectly imaginable that these humans could put their thumb on the uh, prophetic scale, so to speak. You have to think that sending copious golden offerings the Delphians' way might possibly lead to a more favorable prophecy. And, indeed, Herodotus explicitly states that such was Croesus's aim in showering the Delphians with riches after the Pythia passed his test, but before he asked his first question. Such gifts, whether offered up before or after a prophecy was given, served another purpose as well. Delphi was, as I said earlier, a pan-Hellenic site. Greeks from all over would come there to consult the oracle. For that reason, cities built treasuries and dedicatory monuments on the road leading up to the Temple of Apollo, called the Sacred Way, so that visitors had to walk by them to speak with the Pythia. Is it any surprise, then, that these treasuries were opulent structures, designed to promote the piety and the wealth of the cities that built them? What better place for a city to put a billboard promoting its own power and glory? For a beautiful video that reconstructs the treasury of the Athenians in 3D and in glorious color, check out the episode page on the website. As with the discussion back in episode 4 about the gold that Gyges sent to Delphi after his kingship was given the oracular seal of approval, Herodotus's elaborate description of Croesus's offerings serves another purpose than merely to highlight the Lydian king's wealth, though it certainly does that too. Herodotus uses these treasures as a form of opsis, visual proof, to back up his story. In summarizing the account of the king's gifts, I left out some of the details given by the historian that helps establish this account as a form of opsis. For example, Herodotus says of the golden 750-pound lion statue that, when the temple of Delphi burned down in 548, the lion was partially burned away, and, after being reduced by 35%, now, which is to say in the time of Herodotus, could be found in the treasury of the Corinthians. Similarly, the gigantic silver bowl that the king dedicated was now, again in Herodotus's time, being used by the Delphians to mix wine at a yearly festival. The historian adds similar confirmatory details about some of the other gifts at Delphi. 
when he mentions the golden spear and shield that Croesus gave to the shrine of Amphiaraeus, he adds, in the same vein, that these objects can still be seen, quote, in my day at the Temple of Apollo at Thebes. Again, the implicit message here is, I went to Delphi and saw these things. If you don't believe me, go to Delphi yourself and take a good look. Next time on the podcast, Croesus considers his options when it comes to Greek allies, and Herodotus lays a bit of Athenian history on us. See you then on the Herodotus Podcast. <laughs>